welcome to episode 262 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was recorded on Giving Tuesday, 1st of December 2020. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. The big issue publisher, Baron Bird of Notting Hill, loves bicycling. I know this because we chatted earlier today about his latest project, a docked bike share scheme for smaller cities using electric bikes, fettled and hired out by unemployed people and others who may be vulnerable and in need of a way of improving their lives. I'm Carlton Reed, and today's hour-long episode is a corker, even though my guest admits that, in a former life, he was a bike thief. Lord Bird disputes this, however, preferring to say he rode bicycles stolen by others. Now, he's had a fascinating life so far, a life enriched by art and what he calls social kindness. And he's clearly not ready to put his feet up under his ermine robes just yet. In the second half of today's show, we talk about big issue e-bikes, due to be rolled out in the first quarter of next year. But much of the first half is Lord Bird telling me about his tough start in life and how he managed to turn his angry, brick-throwing nihilism into a force for good. He co-founded The Big Issue in 1991, thanks to some investment from big-nosed Scott, his words, not mine, Gordon Roddick of Body Shop fame. The Big Issue is still sold by those living in poverty, but because of Covid, no longer from the street. Lord Bird discusses the various other ways you can now help out Big Issue vendors, first, we talk about Giving Tuesday and Taking It Away Wednesday, with the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea set to dismantle the well-used cycleway on Kensington High Street. You are known, John, as Baron Bird of Notting Hill in the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, which is an absolutely fantastic name. Uh, uh, Of course, shortened to Lord John Bird. But may I call you John? You uh, all right? Just this one occasion, just this one occasion, I will allow. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Just because Baron Bird of Notting Hill in the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea would be would be a long conversation, wouldn't it? Yeah. Can I, <laughs> can I tell you they got the geography wrong? All right. Because Notting Hill is divided between the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, and also the Borough of Westminster which was Paddington when I was born. So I was actually born in the royal, in the borough of Westminster, as it is now. Right. But they got it wrong, and they'd filled in all the forms, and it couldn't be changed. So 
So, <laughs> yeah. so I'm, I'm really the, the Lord Bird of Westminster, but it doesn't matter. Westminster, not, um, Royal Borough, Kensington, Chelsea, they're all posh places now. But they I was going to say both, both pretty posh, but they weren't back in 1946, John. They were the, the – actually, where I was born – um, had the highest infant mortality rate mm-hmm. than anywhere in the UK. So if you wanted to kill your children, uh, say, for instance, you didn't want so many children, then move them <laughs> off the hill because there's a distinct chance they would die. <laughs> now, but now you live in, in the equally posh Cambridge, is that right? Well, I don't live in the town. I live out in the country nearby. Um, yes, I love Cambridge. I first came to Cambridge when I was seventeen. I hitched from London uh, and uh, to go to an exhibition at the Fitzwilliam. And I came out at the age of seventeen and said, "One day I'm going to live here." It was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And also, I was kissed by a young student, a young woman, a young girl who invited me to a party. And I thought, "I've got to come back here." And I came back maybe forty-five years later to live here. Very nice, with my young family. Yeah. Now, Cambridge is is noted for being a bicycle place, and we, we, I, I do absolutely want to get onto the the, the bicycle related nature of today's conversation. But let's go backwards a little bit in that, uh, and go back to Notting Hill, uh, and that is um, Kensington High Street. I don't know if you know at the moment, but right this second in time, uh, the Royal Borough is is taking out a protected cycleway on Kensington High Street. Were you aware of that? I was not aware of that, but um, I don't know why they would do that because the future is going to be about bikes. Um, it is, is it not interesting that kind of 40 or 50 years ago, if you saw photographs of Beijing, it would be full of bikes and then they moved back to car, they moved into cars and now even Beijing and all those places that were that are newly prosperous are now going back to bikes. I don't know why uh, the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, but they, they you know, that like most authorities, they're capable of doing things that look very bovine from the outside. I'm sure they have, will have a logic that we probably wouldn't agree with. Hmm. That's that's a very diplomatic way of putting it. Yes, yeah. yes. I, I mean, I used to work for the Royal Borough of Kensington as a, a as a little as a road sweeper, uh, and I worked uh, in the cleansing department, uh, and I worked in the parks department. And every now and then they would do something really strange. I mean, one of the things they did. I'm sorry that I'm going on about it. Is they over the weekend pulled down the beautiful Kensington Town Hall in Kensington High Street because on the Monday they were told there was going to be a um, one of those preservation orders. So they pulled it down over the weekend. Mm. Uh, it was it was not illegal, but it was very, very shady practices. When was and that, John? When, without me going on to Google and finding out, roughly. That was about 1980. Now, John, today is Giving Tuesday. And that's that's part of a of a of a greater whole, which is like the the, the social kindness. Uh, so tell me a, a bit about uh, the importance of today and and social kindness in general. Well, uh, 
I worked in the United States about 22 or three years ago, and I produced a magazine in Los Angeles called Off the Wall. This is where it all goes back to. Uh, and working in Los Angeles and meeting some really, really desperately poor people in South Central, in Watts, in uh, Crenshaw, in, in, in um, Compton and all that, I was always staggered by the amount of people I met who were doing things for the community. And I kind of logged that. I thought they're not doing it for money. They're doing it because for the love of other human beings. And these are some of the poorest people on earth. Uh, and we, in our magazine called Off the Wall, we uh, had, we chose a day of the month, which was called the 32nd day. And we awarded, we said to people, Choose any day of the month, whether it's the third or the fifth or the sixth, and call it your 32nd day. And your 32nd day of the month was when you woke up in the morning and you said, I'm going to do something for the benefit of others because it will benefit me. And we had hundreds and hundreds of people sending in suggestions of what could you could do and all that. And it was it was overwhelming. Unfortunately, I then had to come back to the UK because we were having we had to do stuff with the big issue. And I came back and I, I parked that up. Then, lo and behold, the COVID-19 hits. And suddenly you get these enormous outbursts mm. of people wanting to help other people. And there is, no, uh, there is no rhyme or reason other than the fact that it's human beings forgetting the fact that they're consumers, forgetting the fact that they've got their own problems, for rent or mortgage and all that, and they go the extra mile for the community, the weak, the the lame and the halt. And that is absolutely brilliant. I mean, even somebody like like uh, Mark Rashford um, tweeting a very simple thing, and he tweets, he says, why does the government not look out for our children uh, for their school dinners? And it's a bit ratty. To And lo and behold, that gets taken up. And every person who responded to that tweet, uh, in a way, de was demonstrating social kindness to such an extent that they changed the government's mind. Oh, suddenly they could afford it and it looked mean. So we got all these outbursts. I know a company that um, was one of those largest suppliers of toilet paper and gel and all those sorts of things that were in, that were in demand in March. And they sent out a note. Now, this is anti-commercial, but this big company sent out a note saying any of the people they supply, if they are found to be upping the prices and based on shortage, then they will stop supplying them. Now, that is a totally uncommercial thing to do, to turn on your suppliers and say, you have to be morally strong at this moment. And mm. all those kind of outbursts, the way in which readers of of a number of newspapers, uh, readers of the big issue, got behind the big issue when all of our vendors were removed from the streets. All these sorts of things. I am. I think that we've gone through the worst year that I have ever known for indecision, for too much advice coming from 20 different places, uh, cumbersomeness, not being in the right place at the right time, not knowing how to respond to the COVID but an attempt by the government and by local authorities to impose some kind of order. And you had all that, and you had all those tragic deaths, some of them 
probably need not have happened if we'd been better organized. Yet, 2020 will also be remembered not just as a time of tragedy, but also a time of a new way of working together and sharing all in it, one, all for one and one for all. So to me, social kindness is a recognition of that. And at the end of this year, when we have our uh, special issue about reviewing the, the, the year that we've been through, we will leave other people to go on about all the other things. And what we will do is we will extract the positivities, the building back better of social interaction with each other. And we're going to start 2021 with reminding everybody that we need to be working together to be to, in order to get through this. I believe that this is the break that is possible to create a new optimism in the community, even though it's founded on cha a challenging tragedy of all of those misfortunate people who, who died in the last year. So uh, lockdown ends December 2nd, and then you can get your vendors back on the streets because we, we need to, to, to remind people that people haven't been allowed to be selling Big Issue on the streets. You've done a few innovative things haven't you, with, with, uh, which you haven't done before, and purely because of COVID. So what, what have you done to get Big Issue out there in, in different ways? Well, one of the things that we've done is we've recognised the, the, almost the near death of the streets uh, and, and said, how, can, therefore, can we work with homeless people who, uh, and people who, who sell the Big Issue? How can we work with them in a way that says no we're not going to accept this laying down. So we moved into subscriptions, getting people on subscriptions, getting digital copies of the magazine, and we've been relatively successful at that. I mean, we've lost we lost virtually all of our sales, for well, mm -hmm. nearly all of our sales except for subscription and digital uh, for the for the virtually the whole of the lockdown. This second lockdown. It's been quite difficult to organise it, but we've managed to, to carry on supporting our vendors. And we've done, one of the innovations we've done is where you can go onto the website and you can itemise and alert, uh, you know, uh, find out where the vendor is. And then when you buy a subscription or a digital copy, make sure, you know, we'll tell you that half the money will go to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're carrying on with the relationship. The big challenge for us is what happens in the new year. Will the high street get back to where it was? Probably not. People working at home. Mm -hmm. So we will have to innovate at a much faster and accelerated level. And we're up for it because we believe, and this is one of the other things about social kindness, we believe that our readers are, really want to get behind uh, what we're doing. They want to support people in need. They want to support people out of need. The only tragedy for me, uh, and I'll, I'll have to say maybe I'm more frightened than most people, is that a lot of our readers uh, and people who are at Debenhams and all these other companies, mm. Acadia, are going to be the people who are lining, who are being lined up. If they're not supported, they could end up as the new homeless and that frightens me because that's not the eight to 9,000, 10,000 people we work with a year. That's hundreds of thousands. And I really do not want any person and their children 
and other members of their family having to go through the dungeon, the Bastille of homelessness that I went through as a child. Let's 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 talk about that because you had a rough childhood. So a, a part of of why uh, you got involved uh, with with the Roddicks to to create. Of, of the body shop fame to create uh, the biggest you was you had a background where you had been homeless you did have a troubled background so w- w- tell me about that well um i was um i think i was groomed to fail <laughs> um i i had a i mean i love my parents um love them to death uh they were you know working class or laboring class people my mother was a barmaid when she met um, a distillery worker who was my dad. They were; she was eighteen, he was twenty. Uh, they got married uh, a bit later. Uh, lived in a, the slums of Notting Hill, where my father came from, and where my mother had come from, come to from Ireland. Uh, and um, they had children. They did what everybody else was doing, having children, so they had six children, uh, but three and four, four in the slums before the family broke apart when I was seven and we moved into an orphanage. But for that period, they had their children, uh, no money worth talking about wages. My father, unfortunately, was a heavy drinker. So a lot of that money disappeared on a Saturday night. And that was a kind of coping mechanism. That's how poor people often cope cigarettes and drink would be, you know, the, the things that helped you get through the poverty. We were made homeless when I was five because the parents didn't pay the rent. We were out on the street. We were put into a void in the roof of my grandmother's uh, cottage round the corner, which was another slum above a stables in a mews. And we became very ill. We were moved to a, what was called a council house, but it wasn't. It was a condemned house with some rooms that you could live in, semi-condemned house. Lived there, didn't pay the rent, got thrown out, ended up in a Catholic orphanage. So in in a way, everything that my early life was a preparation for social failure. Uh, I was dyslexic, so I I did very badly at school, couldn't really understand. My brothers did better. My brothers were much better behaved than I was because they kind of accepted... Uh, the fact that they were, you know, at the bottom of the pile, and I never did. I was, were they, so the older brothers, or where where are you in the family? Brothers. Yeah, my older brothers kind of. I was the I was the third one, and then there was another one, the fourth one, and they accepted, you know. All right, then this is where we are. I mean, like my dad did and my mum did, but I was a real pain in the rear because I hated. Uh, this I hated the uh, everybody. I hated teachers. I hated policemen. I hated, you know I was a horrible little dauber of you know um, you know swastikas and you know all the kind of rubbish thinking that went with poverty. I was starting fires and and I was always in trouble. So I I was the one who kept getting nicked. So from the age of ten, we came out of the orphanage and at the age of ten, first thing shoplifting. You know, uh, starting fires, you know, tearing down fences, getting into trouble, going before the courts, the juvenile courts, and same again at the age of 11, not going to school, bunking off school. 
Is that Great. anger, John, or was that seeking attention? What was what was the motivation? Can you can you go backwards and think about what you, you as a child were thinking? Um, I, I I can't. You know, it's it's so extraordinary because I I I see people doing vandal. You know, create vandalism now, and I was you know if I'm around and if I'm in a position, I'd stop them. I, I have no. I I think. A lot of us are on overdrive, uh, and you don't quite know. I mean, most of us don't really know all of our motivations and our tastes uh, and, and what we like. But I, I did like, I loved being uh, a pain in the rear. I loved climbing the fence into the new building site opposite where we lived and getting the bricks and throwing in the puddles and smashing the windows. I loved all that stuff. And I was about seven, six, seven. Uh, and when I was in the orphanage, I loved um, uh, I loved the fact that I couldn't, they all beat me and, and knocked me around because I wouldn't accept what they wanted to do. And I ran away and I did all sorts of things. They actually tried kindness on me uh, and allowed me to go to the cinema. And, and for some strange reason, <laughs> what a surprise, I suddenly started to play less of a pain in the rear job and and kind of fell in love with some of the people who were trying to help us because you had all these nuns who all they were, you know, they're a couple of hundred seriously disturbed children from the slums and the rundown cities of, of London, really, and the South. Uh, and they were there trying to help us and, you know, the rough love and tough love and all that. But in the end, I kind of got it. But it still meant that when I got out, I was, I was, you know, not a very nice boy. And, and I was always the boy who was accused in the class if there was something stolen. And I never stole, ever, ever stole from any of my contemporaries. When money went missing, the dinner money, they blamed me. Mm. And, of course, I never, and then they'd find out later on that they'd done it wrong, they'd added it up wrong. So I was... I realized, of course, I had a bad name and I was getting more and more bad reputation. So, but uh, I can't say that I was unhappy. I always felt that I was alive. <laughs> so it's a pain to have to admit that. But I kind of like being a bit of an outlaw. And I think that might have been all the kind of silly little cowboy films that I watched. But I love being different. And I think that's what got me into the prison system. And that is why at the age of 16, I could learn to read and write in a boys' prison. And my brothers never really mastered that. And that's how I learned a bit of printing. Mm. I learned about gardening. I learned to, to sit an exam, even though I never passed it, a level, um, an O level. Uh, I tried all, I did all that. And, and the thing was, and this is the extraordinary thing, is that the, the state, will not spend more than it has to on your education if you are a, a labourer or if you're a you know semi-skilled worker. So they'll supply you with just about enough to get you by. But if you're a naughty boy or a naughty girl, they'll throw a lot of money at you to stop you uh, offending later in life. So I was blessed with the fact that they spent a shed load of money. I was in a I was in a place that cost three times what it cost if my children had sent me to Eton. 
<laughs> Unbelievable. And that wasn't paid for by mum and dad. I had the best public school. You know, I mean, no wonder I talk like this now, and I'm very, very posh. So I went to one of Britain's greatest public schools. It was called a reformatory. <laughs> there you are. Got the accent. <laughs> But then you've gone to, you, you, this is the 1960s now, we're going to leap forward. So then you've gone to the Chelsea School of Art. Yeah. Well, but you're homeless still. Well, I was, when I was, my mum threw me out because once she got her hands on my grant and spent it very quickly, because she was a woman who, if a, whole, a pound would burn a hole in her pocket, she had to spend it. So that went very, very quickly. And then uh, we had an argument over a bowl of porridge and she threw it over my head and burned me quite badly because she was quite an aggressive woman. And I, I left. And when I, I left for the day and when I went back, my dad said, you're not staying here. So I went and I slept rough that night. And then a couple of nights later, I started to sofa, sofa surf. Mm. So all of the first uh, six months of my time at art school, I I was uh, homeless. So I was a so sofa surfer. But the interesting thing was, why was I at an art school at the age of eighteen when all my mates were digging holes for the mm. London Electricity Board? I tell you why, because when I was banged up, they found out that I liked to draw and I paint, and I did. And they said they encouraged that, and they encouraged it so much that when I came out. At, nearly the age of 18, I had this enormous portfolio, absolutely, and I looked like a boy genius. I was drawing and painting all the time, and all the screws, or masters as they like to call themselves, were kind of proud of the fact that this little git, you know, from Notting Hill could could actually turn out stuff that they would want hanging in their houses. So I went to art school with this enormous portfolio, and I looked like little Leonardo da Vinci mm-hmm. from, from the World's End Chelsea, you know. Uh, do, you, do you continue that? Do you still do art? I do. I, I, I'm obsessed by art. In fact, I love to tell my children, when I was 18, I was Britain's greatest unknown painter, mm-hmm. which I still adhere to. And, and if I had my time again, my five children would not exist. I would have got myself uh, somebody who'd paid me, and I would be, I'd have a room, uh, and I'd live in the room, I'd paint in the room, I'd draw in the room, and I would have nothing to do with anybody, just paint and paint and paint and paint, not have any children, not have anything. And I tell them that, and they say, oh, so you only you only had us because you failed as an artist. And I say, yes, yes. And then when people say to me, you must love the homeless and you must love sorting out the world's problems, I say, I do. But if I had my time again, I wouldn't be doing any of that. Now, that's a horrible thing to say, but I absolutely, I love painting and I love, I love everything about it. And some of the greatest moments I've had is standing in front of an American painter, for instance. There's a beautiful American abstract painter called Helen Frankenthaler, and standing in front of this beautiful abstract work, uh, and or, or Lee Krasner, who is the wife of, who was the wife of Jack the Dripper, you know, Jackson Pollock, um, and uh, these beautiful, beautiful artists. And I, I, I just, it's, it's almost a kind of spiritual uh, mm. encounter for me, of wonderful painters. And, and when I get the chance, I'm drawing and painting. 
um, and, uh, and and doing things like I've done. I had an exhibition which you might not you might want to blurt blurt this one out. It was called Grasses, Asses, and Trees, and it was life drawings. It was trees, grasses. It was abstracts and all that stuff. Uh, you know, I've been drawing from models for, for, for over 50 years. I've been drawing friends. I've been drawing everything. I've been drawing the trees in my garden. And um, I will soon be launching a, 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 a website which will, uh, you know, enable people to look at my work and, and even buy some of my prints so that then, because I want to use the money to help on projects, which I'm very interested in I'm very interested in people given gardening uh, to help them with their mental well-being. And so th- that reform school education, the prison education, kind of has given you a lifelong interest. Oh yeah, I mean, before I before the when the screw sorry when the masters said when my house master, as he was called. Uh, uh, said to me in my reformatory, look, bird, uh, uh, you've got from 7.30 at night until 9.30 every night, five nights a week, and over the weekend, you're going to have time and you've got to fill it with something. You can stuff toys with K-pop for the local hospital. You can do, do a bit of plumbing. You can do a bit of woodwork. You can do anything. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd like to paint and draw. So they got me, the wife of one of the screws, uh, uh, Mr. Ran, Mrs. Ran, had been a, an art teacher in uh, the Isle of Wight, and she was brilliant. And I would go down to her house two times a week, and we'd talk about art, and we'd talk about everything. And then she'd lay out an enormous spread, uh, which me and Mr. Ran uh, would enjoy. And so a combination of good food and art, and it was just absolutely marvellous. And I love this woman. And she is the one who made me feel there was something deep about art, and it was something that, that every one of us could share. You know, it wasn't – no, everybody can paint and draw. That's the other interesting thing. I've had five children, right? Not one of them ever, when they were doing their childish art – when they were doing their art growing up, not one of them f- produced a dumb, a dumb work because children start as art geniuses mm. and then, unfortunately, we give them all these preoccupations and we try and straighten out their drawing and all that. You know, one of the greatest painters of the 20th century was taught to draw and paint like as though he was a photographer and he spent the whole of his life struggling against that. Pablo Picasso, he tried to paint like a child the whole of his life because he realized that there was an insightfulness that children have. They look at things and they know them before you know them, even though you've been looking at them for decades. So did the the, the petty offending, did that stop when you got this lifelong interest in art? Is that what, was there a light bulb moment or you, you just put on the straight and narrow? I wasn't quite on the straight and narrow because what happened with me, which was, which is, uh, which, you know, I, I can't describe as anything other than going in another direction. I met a young woman 
um, and then we uh, we became an item, and then we married and had a child, and I then got thrown out of art school because I was more interested in this young girl than I was in art for some strange reason. My biology took over, <laughs> uh, and then I and then I went back to another art school and it didn't work, and then I fell into the back into crime and and all sorts of things like that. And I, I was always kind of doing, well, I wasn't always doing wrong, but then I got in, I got a number of things that would have got me two or three years, and I, I disappeared for seven years, and I started using, well, uh, six years. I, I disappeared for six years using all sorts of strange anonymous names, anonymous names, and um, surprisingly... I had so many of these names. I'd move from one job to another in one part of the country to another, and I would have all these names. I didn't even know who I was in the end. And then after six years, I handed myself in, paid fines and paid uh, other things and got myself straightened. And uh, and then from the age of about 28, 29, 30, I then started working legitimately and then I because I fell in love with printing when I was in this establishment I started to become a printer and I trained myself to become a printer not in a particularly nice way I'd get a job and after a couple of hours they realized I couldn't print they'd get rid of me but I'd have learned something and after about 10 jobs I was quite good at it and then I became a printer and I started my own business and I was totally and utterly committed to it because printing is an art and i could make is this is this printing what you're doing like was it a jobbing printer or were you doing magazines you're doing fine art what kind of printer i did i well first of all i started doing catalogs and leaflets and business cards and all that sort of stuff but then what happened was i started to publish stuff. So I started to publish a magazine. I helped publish a magazine for the Royal Academy. I published a book for the Royal Academy. I designed it, printed it, all sorts of stuff. I started magazines with other people. I worked with somebody called the Victorian Society. I designed stuff for them, helped them present themselves. Uh, So I became the printer and almost the publisher of this. Then I worked with a number of charities. I worked with a homeless charity called uh, the the Simon Community. I absolutely loved them because they allowed people to go and live with homeless people and live and experience homelessness. Uh, and I went to, to some of their uh, places that they had in the country and I sat with people who they were just like the people I worked on a building site with, you know, 20 years before. Uh, there was no, there was no um, difference between them and us. Um, and then I, you know, I, so I do printing for people, uh, you know, and I do that kind of stuff. Uh, and I gradually developed a realization towards the end of my 30s and early 40s that I'd had, I had this enormous experience and I had a passion for social change and social justice and I needed to bring it all together. And of course, fortuit- fortuitously, I met somebody re-met some, well, I saw them on the telly and then I pursued them, who I'd known when I was 21, hiding from the police in Edinburgh. And that became 
Gordon Roddick, who with his wife had started the body shop and had become multi-millionaires, which I was very attracted by. So that was 1991. How? Tell me about Gordon Roddick and, and how you knew him in Edinburgh. Well, uh, what, what happened was um, I had one of the, the worst things you can do to the state is steal social security in those days. And what happened was my my wife and I, uh, she was she left me and I was still getting the social security that I should have been sharing with her, but I was sharing it in the local pub. And what happened was uh, they found out about it and they came after me, and that was one of the reasons. And I would have got two to three years for that because I already had a criminal record back to the age of 10 and now I was 21. And so therefore I had to disappear. So I disappeared and I went off to France. I had been educated as a boy or miseducated to have many of the problems that you have in, in, in the poverty world. I had some very, very bad attitudes towards, um, black people and Jews and Indians and Arabs and all that, you know, and I, you know, a lot of people in poverty find their mind closes down and mine was very, very closed. A lot of this inherited from the people around me and from my own parents. Um, And when I went off to Paris, I met some Marxists, Leninists, socialists, Trotskyists and all that. And I completely changed because I met this beautiful girl who challenged everything I said. And in order to win her affections, I started to mimic what she said uh, about, you know, solidarity with the poor and all that stuff, which I didn't believe. And then after a while, I started to believe it. And then after a while, I became a committed, pain-in-the-rear Marxist, anti-racist, anti-everything. So I got changed. This is one of the things that I really want to drive home to people you can start in life or at any one time with the most pernicious racist scummy sort of thinking and if you get the chance of changing it you grow you develop i suddenly became a much bigger person because i've been thinking all of this poor anti-semitic anti-black anti-indian stuff And when I got rid of it, it was like an enormous weight off my shoulders. And that really did help me in the development of myself as a person who could be useful to other people. And I've often uh, had, you know, got involved in in getting rid of racism amongst young people. Um, But anyway, so when I came back to London, converted to this socialist from being almost a kind of Nazi, a fascist, uh, I, I then ended up in Edinburgh because my wife's family lived up there. And I one night I met this big-nosed Scotsman called Gordon Roddick. And I had a big broken nose and he had a big broken nose. So we shared broken nose stories. Mm-hmm. And we became mates. And then I found out he wrote appalling poetry, absolutely love. You know, gut-rotting Appalling poetry. I, at the time, was writing appalling, gut-rotting poetry. So we we complimented each other on how gut-rotting our poetry was, and we became mates. Uh, and then I didn't see him for 20 years, and I saw him on the telly when I was with my son, Paddy, sitting watching the telly, because he was on there with Anita Roddick. Mm. And I thought, 
oh, God, though, I knew them. And then with, with Richard Branson, who I also knew because when he was uh, 17, he started a magazine called The Student, sold by students to work their way through college. And I, at the age of 21, 22, pretended I was a student in London and used to sell his magazine for him. He was always mm -hmm. astonished at how easy it was for me to sell these magazines. But look, lo and behold, 20 years later, I've taken the same model and used it for homeless people with the big issue. So I then went to see Gordon down when I saw him on the telly in 87. And then we kind of put a friendship together. And then he, uh, 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 he, he was in New York and he saw somebody selling a street paper called Street News. And the bloke said that he'd been in and out of the penitentiary for most of his life and he'd used now he wanted to support his children uh, and he didn't want to go back into prison because they'd, they'd throw the key away. So he fell homeless and started selling street news, which was the first world, it was the world's first street paper. Uh, and Gordon asked me to start one in London, uh, which we, which we then called the big issue. That was 1991. John will, will, We'll come back to the big issue in a second. But right now, I want to go across uh, to have an ad break. And I'm going to uh, pass you across to or pass us all across to uh, David, my co-host. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a longtime loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at JensenUSA.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who, who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Thanks, David. And we are back with... Uh with Baron Bird, with uh, Lord John Bird, but he has graciously allowed me to call him John. So, John, we are back. You, you've, been, you, you've been fascinating history, uh, a troubled history, we've got to say, uh, but and also a positive history in that you use art to, to change your life around eventually. You've used your printing skills and your publishing skills with Gordon Roddick to create this this iconic magazine, The Biggest You, which has got on to have many uh, examples of it all around uh, the world. But now you are doing something, again, innovative uh, with, with bicycles. So tell me exactly what you're going to be doing, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, with, with Sharebike of, of Norway. So what are you going to be doing with those bikes? 
Well, it coincides with the tremendous problems that uh, society and the economy is having throughout the world. Um, and that is that you, we've got to create uh, new forms of work. We've got to create new forms of business. We were approached by Sharebike um, with the idea of putting together a business that would use electric electric bikes. I've always been fascinated with bikes. Uh, in fact, a number of the times I got arrested and put into detention centers and places like that were to do with my inability to keep my hands off of other people's bikes. But now I don't nick them. I want to work with them. And the idea of electric bikes I, I find fascinating because it means you can go further, uh, you can get exercise, you can get fresh air, uh, and you can do it all yourself, not, not simply rely on the internal combustion engine. So what happened with, um, with the just previous to the COVID-19, we started to put together this idea of starting uh, in Cambridge and then moving on to other cities. Uh, I like the idea that I could gain, I could begin to grow employment for other people. Then the COVID-19 hit and uh, kind of slowed us down a bit, but we still carried on. And the COVID-19 raises the question of lots of people not having a job. And therefore, uh, it's created a much, much bigger need for us to help create businesses that will create jobs for people uh, in and around sales, in and around maintenance, in and around distribution. Um, and it means that we can take some of the people we work with selling the newspaper, the magazine, uh, and we can train them up. But also we can take people who have fallen into, in, into unemployment through the crisis. We can start training them up. So it's the beginning of a way of intervening in the economic crisis and at the same time doing something which is very, very interesting, which is helping people to get exercise, to get out of doors, to get away from the internal combustion engine and obviously to move towards a, a world which is environmentally not as challenged because you're not using, uh, you're not using um, fossil fuels. So this is the, it kind of hits all sorts of things. The other thing is that I've got a bill going through the Lords and, and it's also going through the House of Commons with, um, with Caroline Lucas, who is an MP there, um, which is called the Wellbeing of Future Generations. And that is about the importance of environmentalism, the importance of education, the importance of, of jobs and all that, and making sure that the government doesn't pass legislation that harms the generations yet to come. So all of this fits together. So it's a wonderful, it's the, the legal, you know, the, the bill, the, the parliamentary stuff, the political stuff we're doing in parliament, the work around the big issue of, of growing uh, work for people and also not accepting uh, the, the fact that people will slip into homelessness because they will be unable to uh, find work by creating as much work as we can. So we have something called the, the Today for Tomorrow program, and it, 
and this um, we've got a, a campaign called uh, the Rider Out Recession Alliance, which brings businesses together, brings local authorities together, brings charities together, and brings individuals together to try and create the new jobs and the new opportunities, and at the same time campaign to keep people out of evictions and get them back working so that they can support themselves. So John, tell me how this works, A, for the homeless person, and B, for a Cambridge resident. Obviously, you want to expand it in other cities, but just you're a Cambridge resident and you, 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 you'll want a bike at some point. So, so describe those two ways of operating. Well, first of all, we will be taking uh, some of the people who can be trained up to do some of the skills around marketing, around selling the service, uh, and also around maintaining the bikes, picking the bikes up wherever they get dropped off, and all of that kind of thing that you would have to do with any form of bike business. Um, So we will be uh, training up people who who have been homeless or who are trying to get out of homelessness. And at the same time, uh, because we want to, we want, we don't want this to be a ghetto of the socially displaced. We want to put in other people who have recently fallen into the need for work and grow it almost as, a, as organically. So that's the way that we imagine it. For the uh, for for the Cambridge resident or the Brighton resident or the Bath or Bristol or whatever city we go from. Um, what we want to do is offer them a service that they're wanting to use uh, at, that has a social echo. That means if you use what we're doing, then the profits will go back into aiding and abetting people to get out of poverty and aiding and abetting people to get out of all the needs that go with not being able to keep a job because you've fallen out of it and help the people to get into a job who have been homeless, who have been selling the big issue and who need to move on. So are these, because there are the two kinds of share bikes, you've got the docked bikes, which are like the London scheme, where they go into a physical dock that's, you know, bolted, cemented into the ground, and then you take them from there. And then you've got the dockless kind, where they're freestanding, you can pick them up from from anywhere but with electric bikes you you clearly need to have them uh powered from somewhere at some point so so what model is this uh using well the one that we're working on and obviously innovations will happen those dockless bikes uh, were innovated because of the fact that you had an entrenched place where you picked the bike up before um and uh, so we will innovate as we go along, and we may even have a situation where we would deliver bikes to a college or a business so that they can use it around their uh, buildings and around, uh, you know, like the, the science park or somewhere like that. But we will start by having docked places, uh, and those we will make sure that we have the staff to make sure that things get, you know, the bikes get juiced up, as they call it. <laughs> uh, so, so those are the kind of uh, early steps that we'll take. Obviously, we'll find that there will be times when uh, people may 
want to take the bike home with them and then we'll have to look at ways of doing that. I know that in the village that I uh, live in on for a period of time, when these dockless bikes appeared, you, there was five or six of them, uh, and then they disappeared. And I don't know if they were thrown in the river or mm. stolen. But, you know, obviously we have to keep security very important because uh, uh, that keeps your cost down and it means makes you more of a, um, you know, a reliable and, and viable business. And, and what what's the time scale on this? When are we going to see the first bikes in Cambridge? Uh, it will certainly be probably in the spring of, of 2021. Are you a target customer? Here, John, are you going to be one of the people who will be using this? Yeah, I, I am a target customer because I would like to. I mean, I cycle everywhere. So I cycle, you know, the seven miles into town, cycle around the town and all that. I'm a, a sprightly 74 year old. So I don't need electricity to get me in to town. But if I want to go somewhere else, if I want to go really far, uh, and be back for lunch. Uh, I will. I will use it for a kind of commuting, and I, you know, back to social kindness. I think there is a kind of social kindness factor in everything we do. I mean, the big issue is bought by people who believe in our vendors. They may believe in the magazine, but more than anything, they believe in our vendors. That is social kindness, and I think we will be able to make people feel better in in uh, in some ways maybe a very marginal when they say i'm riding a bike that is helping people out of need and into opportunity uh, john it's been fascinating talking to you um i would just like to to before we go i just want you to, to either confirm or deny this this delicious story and i i do hope you're gonna you confirm it but on your Wikipedia page, there is a big gap actually between what you were doing in the 70s and, and 1991. But anyway, um, it just says here, uh, for two weeks in 1970, John worked as a dishwasher in the Houses of Parliament canteen. And, and that's, of course, an institution that you would later return to in 2015 as a peer. Is is that true? That's very true. Um, they were in In the late 60s and the early 70s, uh, there was these temporary job agencies, and you would go to them. I don't know if they're still there. And you'd go there, uh, manpower and people like that. And you'd go there, and you'd you might have a job for two weeks. So I was, I had a whole slew of jobs very quickly, and also because I was working under an assumed name. And I went to this agency in in Victoria, and they said, "Oh, uh, do you want to wash up in the House of Lords?" And I said, yeah, why not? And and the House of Commons, because they used to move you from canteen to canteen. Um, so I went there, and I think I, I started, I either started off in the Commons and ended up in the Lords or whatever. So I worked there, and, and that was really, really interesting for me. And I, at the time, I was a kind of mad socialist, and I got very, I cheesed off the the management because I kept saying to the workers, why are you, in the in the house of democracy, being so poorly paid, why is it that you're, that you're the working poor, and we here we are in the centre of democracy? So I raised that question, and I've also raised that question uh, since then. Why is it that you can 
be working for the state, uh, which uh, uh, runs the, the the system for the government, the elected government, and yet you can be almost a member of the working poor. You might get a living wage, but a living wage is often not very conducive to living or living in a way that can enrich your life. So I was there, and um, after a couple of weeks, they wouldn't renew my contract because I was such a pain in the rear saying to people, yeah, why don't we go on strike and get uh, get better wages? Um in 2016, when I went into the Lords, one of the first persons who copped hold of me was the cook uh, uh, in in the uh, in the kitchen and insisted I walked round. And then the BBC found out about it, and they were making a film called A Year in the Lords, and they chose me as a as a novice coming in, and they took me around the kitchen as well, and I got to know the cook, and I got to know the staff. What I really was pleased with was that the cook and the deputy cook, they were all into the idea of, of getting people who had, you know, maybe had some problems earlier on in life and training them up in, uh, you know, cookery and, and in kitchen arts and all that. So a number of the people were people pretty similar to where I'd come from in the first instance. So I was very, very pleased, and there was a there was a whole group of them I gave a talk to, and they were astonished to find out that all of the naughty little things that they may have done growing up, I'd also done. So it was so going from I was washed up in the House of Lords. I was washing up in the House of Lords, and I hope people won't say now you're washed up in the House of Lords. <laughs> Yes. Well, John, I will forgive you everything apart from the bike theft. The bike theft. Oh, yeah. Mm. But you see, see that's like, to me, that's the biggest crime in in uh, in the world is, is stealing somebody's bicycle. I just I can't forgive you for that. Forgive you for everything else. Well, let me tell you that is that is an interesting thing. That is really interesting. I mean, I've had about four bikes nicked. The first week I moved to Cambridge, somebody nicked my bike. But the thing was, I didn't steal the bike that got me. What happened was uh, some boys stole some bikes from the school I was in. I found them abandoned in the in my local park, and me and this bloke rode around on them for a few days, and then we put them back to where they were abandoned, where they were picked up by the mum and dad of that. So I was I was what you might call uh, right, right, you know, they, they used to have this thing where you, you stole it. They wouldn't have you for stealing a car. They'd have you for, for taking a car without the owner's content, con- consent. So really all I was, was I was a user of the bike. I have never stolen a bike, but I've been put away for stealing bikes when the person who, the two people who stole them, got away with it and all I did was utilise the bikes. Thanks to Baron Bird of Notting Hill there and thank you for listening to the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. I'm now off to make a Giving Tuesday donation to BigSU.com. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.